Well, thank you, ladies, for the special this morning, and thanks to each of you for being out this morning at Berean Bible Fellowship. We have some liquid sunshine today. What do you think about that? Somebody keeps saying it makes the grass grow, and that's my problem. Anyway, it's good to see everyone here today, and uh, Kathy, I wouldn't worry at all about playing, trying to play the third stanza of Faithful Men, because uh, every time I sing that song, I keep thinking to myself, he should have written another stanza or two. Don't you sometimes think that? I really enjoy that song. It's, it's a great song, and uh, anyway, we are looking in Acts chapter number 26 today, so you are going to be fine if you will just find that place and get that text, because that's where we're going to come back to and spend our time. Although I'm going to start this morning, uh, not by reading a verse from Acts 26, but actually from Acts chapter 9. So, you know, it might be one of those things where you want to find Acts chapter 26, keep some fingers there, turn back to chapter 9, because you're going to kind of recognize this and maybe sort of see what I'm doing here. But Uh, In the interest of time, I'm just going to read the one verse from Acts chapter 9, and that's verse number 6. And it says, And he, and of course this is Saul, or Paul as we know him, And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. So take a look at the part of that verse that contains a question. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And let's have a word of prayer. We'll ask God to bless us as we continue looking into his word this morning. And Father, we are just grateful that we have the opportunity to be together in in church fellowship here this morning, that you've made it possible, you've placed that desire within our hearts, and we have a good, comfortable place. We thank you for the freedoms of our country that still allow us to gather. And uh, although, Lord, we have concerns about how those freedoms appear to be uh, eroding and how uh, many Christian values seem to be under attack today, Uh, Thank you that we are here today. We have this privilege, and we know, Father, the Bible tells us that we're to redeem the time, knowing that the days are evil. And so I pray, Father, that regardless of the burdens that we may carry today, that you would help us just to open our hearts and do everything we can to listen to your word today, knowing that that might be the very way in which you want to address the needs that we bring to this place today. And, Father, we just uh, continue to commit all the things that we've heard already in the service to you, But realizing now that we look to your word, we pray for a special blessing. And Father, especially as we think about these upcoming services beginning next Sunday, we pray, Father, you would just work in our hearts and lives to prepare for that. And may they be a real blessing. And may we sense your presence in and through those meetings. For these things we pray now in Jesus' wonderful and holy name. Amen. Well, I really appreciate the fact that Brother Lee has taken some time in the adult Sunday school class to try to get us a little bit attuned to the fact that special meetings are coming. I know through all of my ministry, whenever we had special meetings scheduled, I always took probably a minimum of two weeks before we got to the meetings to try to begin talking about things, preaching about things, and other things that we might do to prepare our hearts for the fact that the meeting is coming. Um, Brother Lee said something last Sunday that is oh so true. It was Sunday school class, so I didn't say amen. But uh, I don't know, maybe that would have been fine. But uh, you know, you really don't have to wait until the revival speaker comes to make decisions for God and to have revival in your heart and life. And uh, I oftentimes thought that many times the things that we talked about, we saw decisions even before um, the revival meetings would start. But I also know something else is true too, that you can be the best preacher in the world, which I am not, but you can be the best preacher in the world and still we don't ever want to discount the fact that The evangelist is one of the gifts that the Lord gives to the church. And we find this in Ephesians chapter 4, right? So it says there, he gave some apostles. Do we have apostles today? No. He gave some prophets. Do we have prophets in the sense of foretelling today? No, we don't have that. We may have those who preach, so in the sense of foretelling God's word. But we don't have the New Testament office of a prophet so much today. Um, Then he says he gave some evangelists. Do we have evangelists today? Yes, we do. And some pastors and teachers. Do we have pastor teachers today? Yes, we do. So we have two abundantly clear gifted men whom God has given to the church, one of whom is the evangelist. And so it's really important for us to realize the pastor has his gifts, the evangelist has his gifts. And, uh, you know, I always envied the evangelist a little bit because uh, they could blow in, blow up, and blow out. And then they would leave the pastor with all the fallout. 
But on the other hand, I really don't know that I could travel from place to from place to place, week to week. To me, that would, would be a very difficult thing to do. So you have to respect and know that God is called evangelist. So let's try to keep that in mind. This will be God's servant who's coming. I know you're familiar with him, but this will be God's servant who's coming next week. And we want to do everything we can to make sure that our hearts are prepared and ready for those meetings. In view of that, I wanted to do something today. We'll still maintain our series, which uh, is, and they asked him this, they asked him this, which are questions which are asked of the Lord Jesus by various people. But in this case, we're pretty much jumping to the end of the series. We're taking up a question that may be very, uh, may very well be one of the most famous, maybe the most famous question that was ever asked of the Lord Jesus. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Interesting, isn't it? Because we're not even in one of the Gospels. We don't have one of Jesus' opponents. We've seen a category of questions that arise from Jesus' opponents. We don't have one of the disciples, at least not in the sense that we're thinking about it from the Gospels. We don't have that at all with Saul, especially as we meet him here in Acts chapter 9. And, and as he's telling his testimony in Acts chapter 26, we don't have that. We, don't have, we have people from various walks of life, but Paul is sort of in a category all by himself, isn't he? And pretty much any time I get to, cheat, to preach on the Apostle Paul, I'm a happy camper. Uh, Paul is one of my favorites in the New Testament. I find Paul's life exciting, and I hope that this message will be an encouragement to you today. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? I'm going to rephrase that slightly for the title of today's message to what do you want me to do? It seems to me that that's an appropriate question to think about, pray about, meditate about as we think about special meetings coming up. What do you want me to do? By way of introduction, here's just some interesting things about the book of Acts and the testimonies of Paul's conversion that we have recorded there. Do you know there are three? We went back to Acts chapter 9. We read the verse from Acts chapter 9, and that's basically the first time that we have any familiarity with this story as Luke narrates it within the, within the thread of his, uh, the church history that he's writing. He tells us about the conversion of Saul, and we read some things about Saul leading up to his conversion, too. We know a little bit about the fact that he was a persecutor of the church, those types of things. But that's Luke's narration of the event. Now, when we get to Acts chapter 22, and we didn't turn to that, but you would be familiar, I think, that that basically is the second time that we hear Paul's testimony. This time, it's on the lips of Paul himself. He's telling his own testimony, and he's doing it in response to the riot that takes place in the temple. Do you remember that story? The riot that takes place in the temple. And uh, Paul asks the chief captain after the initial violence has subsided and the, and the soldiers are, are taking Paul up the stairs to the fortress if he can address the people. And the soldier is surprised that he speaks Greek. He thinks that Paul is someone else. And uh, Paul explains to him exactly who he is in short terms and gives him the opportunity and the Bible tells us that when uh, he, he got ready to address the people, he, he gestured to them. And when he began to speak in the Hebrew tongue, they got very, very quiet. And Paul went on to give his testimony in Acts chapter 22. Now, we're actually going to be looking at the third account today, Acts 26, even though the question that we're looking at is common to the first two, but not so much the one that is before us. That's kind of an interesting thing. What we have here in Acts chapter 26 is Paul giving his testimony by way of making his defense, if you will, before King Agrippa. So I think you're familiar with that story as well. By the way, folks, at this point, I think we can stop and just make a very general point. You know, giving your testimony, using your testimony, is often a very, very effective way to witness for Christ. I know many of us find it difficult to witness for Christ. Sometimes we're we're nervous. Sometimes we, we, we're afraid that we don't know the Bible as well as we, we, we think we should know the Bible. We're afraid that someone's going to ask us a question. We don't know the answer to it. But you know you have the story of how the Lord Jesus worked in your heart, how you came from not knowing him to knowing him that is so often a very effective means of working your way into the gospel, working your way into being able to tell people what Christ has done for you and what he can do for them as well. So that's something we can say at this point. Now, I mentioned the question. Um, in Acts chapter 9, you have the question, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? You also have it in, in Acts chapter 22 as Paul narrates or gives his, uh, his testimony there uh, before the Jewish people. 
He doesn't use the question as he tells us the story here, but I'll tell you where it would fall as we look at the account if he were to have done this. It would fall right between verse 15 and verse 16. So let's look at this. And I said, Lord, uh, who art thou, Lord? And that's common to all three of them. So he actually asks a question of Jesus before he gets to the one that we're looking at this morning. He has enough sense to know that the voice speaking to him is from heaven, and it's, it's God. It's God who is shown with this bright light. It's God who has stricken him down. He knows this. And so he asks, who art thou, Lord? And Jesus responds, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And what Paul does at this point in the account that we have as he's giving his testimony here is he simply presumes the question that he asks of the Lord and goes on to give the answer that Jesus gave. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Because the very next words are the Lord's response. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, and so forth and so on. So we know the question fits. It's just that as he tells the story here, he doesn't see fit to, to mention the question as he did in the previous two cases. So what I would like to do is point out to you that the reason that I'm using Acts chapter 26 today is because I think that when we digest this, when we think about this, and if God will give some small measure of success to the message this morning, I think we will find three answers to this question. And when we, when we contemplate those three answers to this question, it may be that the Lord uses that to help us begin to think about what it is he wants us to do. It's possible you may get the answer to something along those lines today. It's possible you may get it in the meetings. It's possible you may get it this week in your Bible study or prayer time. I don't know. But I think as we think about these particular words, so if you are one who underlines in your Bible, and I would not presume to tell you whether to do that or not, but if you are one who does this, you might want to underline these three words, and then when you come back to this, you'll kind of be able to pick these out, and you'll remember these thoughts, because I, I really think that this is so important. Um, so first of all, the word that we're looking for, number one, is the word purpose, and we find that in verse number 16. This is the first word that comes up as Jesus responds to this question. What wilt thou have me to do? What do you want me to do? He says, rise, stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this. And the word I'm interested in right now is purpose. So consider underlining this. Maybe you're not sure, so you can decide after the message if you think it was worth underlining. But this is the word that I want to talk about right now. Paul presumes that the Lord has appeared to him for a purpose. This is a foregone conclusion. If we were to ask ourselves, all right, what was that purpose? Then obviously I think the first thing that we would point to is salvation. Paul was not a saved man at this point. In fact, he was just the opposite of this. He would have perhaps fallen into that category of Jesus' opponents. In fact, he was an ardent opponent of the Lord Jesus Christ, deeply, sincerely believing in his heart that Christ was an imposter, and that this group of people who were called the way, the followers of Jesus, were a threat to traditional Judaism as he knew it, and of which he was a strict proponent. And so zealous was he in all of this that he actually, we know this, he had actually gone to the high priest, asked for commission and authority from the high priest, and was actually going to take the trouble of going outside of Israel, even to Damascus, which is northward in Syria, in order to try to round up people who were followers of this way, as the early church was known, and uh, bring them back for punishment. And Paul was involved in giving his vote against Christians who were put to death. We know this. So he, Paul was a, a, a rather interesting individual. He was certainly not saved at this point. But it's interesting that when Jesus develops more of what this purpose is, he says something in verse number 18. He says, it's going to involve, as you're a witness for me, it's going to involve to open their eyes. And when we read the story of what happened to Paul, we realize that Paul could look back on those words and think, wow, my own eyes were opened. I mean, they were opened in lots of ways, really, because you remember when he was stricken down off that beast of burden, that great light shone, and when Paul got up, he couldn't see. It was three days later before he could see, and then when Ananias came in, and it's as it were, those scales fell from his eyes. I don't know exactly what that was. 
and, or how you would explain that medically or if we even need to do that. I just know that Paul couldn't see for three days. They had to lead him by the hand from this point forward until that happened. But his eyes up until that point had been blinded in a different way because he didn't realize who Jesus was. That's why he asks this question, who art thou, Lord? Because he realizes it's the Lord, but when he hears Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why persecutest me? That question just doesn't seem to add up. It doesn't make any sense to him, and he has a question about it. The moment Jesus utters those words, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. I wonder if you have really ever thought and meditated about how crushing how absolutely crushing those words must have been to Paul. To realize that you had been going this way, hard charging this way, even to the point of being a part of the ending of the lives of Christians and persecuting followers of Christ. And then it turns out that this very person that you have regarded as a, as a blasphemer, this very person that you have regarded as an imposter, turns out to be the Lord of glory and the Messiah of Israel. It was just absolutely crushing to him. And really, it was there on that Damascus road that day that as he understood who Jesus is, that he is indeed the Savior, that he understood that Jesus was dying on the cross for our sins and for his sins, and he opened his heart to Christ, that this man became a follower of Christ himself. He was born again. He was saved. So when we think about this in the life of Saul, we can transfer it to our own lives. We can ask ourselves this question, what do you want me to do? What, what, what purpose does God have in your life? Do you believe God has a purpose in your life? Well, I can tell you right now that one of the first things that God would, would desire more than anything else from you today is, is if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, he offers forgiveness of sins. He'd like to make you a child of God. He'd like to give you a home in heaven. He'd like to make you one of his followers just as he did Paul. His plan as it unfolds for your life might not be exactly the same, but Paul asks that question, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? So we know that part of that purpose was in salvation, but Paul was already thinking beyond that. He had enough sense to know that more was involved. And so we have to think next of the word service because as Jesus develops this, and as he later told Ananias, he begins to explain something of what that purpose really is for Paul. That verse back in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, I don't know if you kept a marker there or anything like that, but I want to read that verse for you because, you know, when, when the Lord tells Ananias, I want you to go find this fella, and Ananias says, Lord, don't you know this guy is a persecutor of the church? Don't you know that he is coming here with authority and commission from the chief priest to... to to, to, to deal with all who call upon your name. And the Lord says to Ananias in verse 15 of Acts chapter 9, the Lord said unto him, go thy way. And then he outlines in, 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 in just brief form what it is that he has for Paul to do. For he has a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before. And watch out, there's three people here, or three groups of people, Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. But go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. What a career. What, what, what an amazing purpose that, that God had in the life of, his, of this man. Today, really, the application and the thought is so simple. Have we realized that God has a purpose in saving us if we're here today and we're saved? Do we realize that God has a purpose in saving us beyond just providing fire insurance? After all, what in the world are we doing here? If you think about that question, there's a twofold meaning to it. What in the world are we doing here? And there's a purpose to phrase the question that way because God could have saved us and just taken us home if that were all God had in mind. If all God had in mind was rescuing us from our lost estate and giving us a home in heaven, he could save us and just take us home. But no, he's left us in this world. And one of the most important things for us to do is to begin to ponder, if God intervened in my life, if God brought someone along to uh, show me the way, 
if God has worked in such a way that now I have become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ, what purpose does he have for my life? What plan does he have for my life? What in the world am I doing here? So I just want to ask you the simple question. Have you pondered that? And you might be kind of disqualifying yourself a little bit. You might be kind of thinking, well, you know, Paul was a, a special apostle and I'm not anything like that. Well, you know what? Everybody can't be an apostle. Everybody was a cook, you wouldn't have anybody to eat the food, right? Everybody was a chief, you wouldn't have any Indians. Not everybody's an apostle. Not everybody's a pastor. Not everybody's a Christian school teacher. Not everybody's a missionary. There are lots of folks that occupy normal avenues of life. But God still has a plan. God still has a purpose. God still has something he wants us to do. And I think that one of the greatest things in the world is when someone gets saved, especially a young person gets saved, but it doesn't have to be restricted to young people. One of the great burdens to lay before people like that is, you know, what, what does God want you to do with your life? What is God's will for your life? What does God want you to do? And we know that God has a purpose, and Paul talked about this in another place that uh, uses this word purpose, and I've always uh, gravitated toward this as a tremendous verse that sort of uh, reflects back on this, because there's so many times now when you know the story of Paul, and then you read the epistles, you can see him providing little insights of what's happened along the way. And 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 is a great example of that, where it says, "...who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling." Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So, right again, he refers to this, that in saving us, God has a purpose. It's obviously broader in scope than just redeeming us, although that's certainly one of the most important things to us early on. And sometimes, in the very beginning, that's the most of what we understand. But then as we go along and we read the Bible and we hear preaching and so forth and we realize that, that, that Jesus now, we belong to him, he has a claim on our lives and he has a plan for us and it's important for us no matter what position in life we feel that we occupy, no matter what position of service we feel we do, do have or don't have, to realize that each of us is a child of God, each of us is important to him if we know Christ as Savior, he has a way in which he wants to use our lives and it's important for us. Sometimes that's a matter of thinking about that each day. Lord, what do you want me to do today? What, what do you have for me today? Sometimes it's that specific, and sometimes it's much broader as God uh, impresses on our hearts the direction that he wants for our lives. So that's our first word, purpose, and it has to do with salvation, and it has to do with service. Let's drop down to verse number 19 so we can see the second of these words in Acts chapter 26. I think Paul says something in this verse that is enviable. I think Paul says something in this verse that I hope every one of us can say. He says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. So you're going to have to underline, if you want to get the positive thought, you're going to have to underline part of the word because what we're interested now in is obedience. Can you imagine being able to say that truthfully and honestly? Just think about what he's saying. He's standing before this king. The Roman official is standing off to the side. Festus is standing off to the side, listening to all of this. Paul has this opportunity to address the king, and he tells him about how he was saved. He tells him about how Jesus explained what it was he was calling him to do with his life. And then, without any brag, without any pride, just as a straight, honest, erstwhile fact, he was able to say, whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. And the moment we start thinking about obedience, then what we need to think about is surrender. That's what Paul does with his life. He can honestly testify of these things to Agrippa. What were some of the things that early on demonstrated that Paul, in fact, immediately surrendered to the Lord? Let's go back to chapter 9 for a moment. We're not going to spend a lot of time with this, but... I think, again, it's kind of interesting to see some of the waypoints. Um, we see some of the things that we know very well are so often preached to us. And it's not just preachers sort of telling what their program is. It really is what the New Testament is talking about. 
So first of all, we notice that Paul was baptized. If you notice verse number 18, and immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales and his and, re- and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. Well, now you've got the order right. You've got salvation and then you've got baptism. And uh, some places that gets a little mixed up. But I think as we're careful and as we look at the scripture, um, we understand that this is the biblical order because we understand that baptism symbolizes our conversion. We're buried with him by baptism. It's an identification with Jesus Christ and his death on the cross in that it is now my death on the cross, my payment for sin. We're raised to walk in newness of life because it depicts the fact that he had new life. And so it is that now having accepted Christ, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. We have a new life in Christ. Baptism is one of the two ordinances of the New Testament church. Baptism is like the Lord's Supper in the sense that there is no merit in it. It doesn't get you closer to heaven. It's not something that you do to deserve heaven. It's something you do in response to the fact that you've come to know Christ as personal Savior. In the one hand, it's remembering his death until he comes. On the other hand, it's giving a public testimony of what Christ has done in your life. Has nothing to do with telling people you're perfect. Has nothing to do with now telling people that you're the best Christian in the world. Has everything to do with obedience. You know, when uh, you see the postman, you don't have any question about the fact that it's the postman, right? Because he comes in a blue truck with red, uh, with blue, uh, I mean, a white truck with blue on it. And oftentimes he has, most of them still wear some type of postal uniform. UPS man comes, you don't have any trouble picking that out, right? He's got that great big old brown truck and he's got the UPS logo in the shirt and all that stuff. Plus he's moving at twice the rate of speed everybody else moves at. He's got the uniform, right? He's got the outward credentials. He's got the thing that you, you, when you look at that, you see right away that, okay, that's the UPS man. That's the postman. When people come and see other people baptized, that's sort of the outward credential. We don't do it to be saved. We do it because we are saved. And like uh, the Lord's table, it's symbolic. What we see there is symbolic. Just like when we partake of the elements, they're not the literal blood and body of Christ. They're symbolic of that. And it's not the literal death of Christ, but it's depicting by way of a picture what it is that Christ does in conversion and what it is that he's done in our hearts and lives. Do you know it's a part of the Great Commission? Sometimes I think we we worry a little bit and we say, well, do we overemphasize that? Well, someone says, well, it's just another one of the commandments of God, isn't it? Well, it's true. It is one of the commandments of God, but it happens to be one that Jesus singled out and said, this is what I want you to do in response to being saved. I want you to do this as a public testimony. And we think of the Ethiopian eunuch and he told uh, Philip, he said, here's water. What doth hinder me, to be bat- hinder me to be baptized? Will you answer that question today? What's hindering you? Do you know Christ as Savior? Have you ever been baptized as a believer? What's hindering you? Because it's really something that God wants us to do. And Paul understands this immediately. Do you realize there's no going back in Paul's life? Do you realize in, which this, day, in this day in which we live, we, we've sort of devalued a lot of this stuff. Anybody can be baptized. And it's just almost like anybody can marry you now, you know, send off for something in the, on the Internet. And, you know, and it's, it's, well, you know, I mean, we've devalued and cheapened so many of these things. But when you realize for, for Paul in the early church, by the way, baptism wasn't unfamiliar to the Jews. What did John do? He baptized and it, and it indicated repentance. So this was not something that was unfamiliar to the Jews. But to be baptized in the name of Christ for a Jew... And it would still be the same way today. There'd be no going back on that. But what what doth hinder me? What doth hinder you to be baptized? That's something that we ought to get taken care of if we haven't done that before. And then I noticed something else. We drop down in chapter 9 to verse 22. This is kind of interesting because it says here in verse 22, but Saul increased the more in strength. So he was baptized, and immediately we see him bearing testimony to the fact that he's immediately growing in grace. It says he increased the more in strength. Doesn't it make you want to think a little bit about the the Corinthian believers? 
And Paul says, here you've been saved all this time and I still have to feed you with milk. You're still babes. It's not a, it's, it's not a, a, a criticism to be a babe when you are a babe, but what would you think about a child that uh, was, grew up and was eight years old and still didn't want anything but milk and toast? You know, something's wrong with that kid. There's a whole lot more out there by way of substantive food. And, and the same thing with a Christian. I mean, it, God wants us to grow. We know Peter tells us about this, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These are some of the things that, by the way, this account here is sort of telescoped a little bit because um, what we're told here is that straightway it says in verse number 30, he, or verse number 20, sorry, it says, um, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But the story here is telescoped a little bit by Luke because there's something that Luke's not telling us about that Paul tells us later that happened before this. Before he went to Damascus, well, he went to Damascus, but before he went back to Damascus and was preaching in the synagogues, made such a stir that you remember they had to end up letting him down over the wall in a basket because it got so hot in that place. Then he went to Jerusalem. Did you know that there were three years that intervened? Well, he tells us about that. We, we probably wouldn't know anything about that if Paul didn't tell us that about himself. But in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 17, he tells us, listen to this. He says, Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them that were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Three years. Like I told you, it's impossible, I think, for us to really get a hold of exactly what took place in Paul's heart and life. How, I hesitate to use the word brutally, but just how incredibly crushed he was that day to realize that he had been so wrong and to realize that he was now, and it saw so clearly he was such a sinner. And Jesus intervened in his life, redeemed him, gave him a new life, and then we really don't have any way to know what all took place in that three years, the things that the Lord may have communicated to him, the Lord may have revealed as he, as he just strengthened himself and developed in his, in his understanding of the Old Testament scriptures in the light of Christ and all of these different things, but immediately when that period of time is over, he comes back to Damascus, and there's no question about whether or not he's a strong believer. We have testimony to that right here in Acts chapter 9, verse 22. He increased in strength, and that probably happened until the day that Paul went home. Do you see these little waypoints? Do you see these little things? We, you hear about these things in sermons, and you say, well, is that really? Well, yeah, it is. You see it in the life of, of the apostle Paul. In other words, once we understand that fact that Jesus is Lord, because, by the way, that was the question, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Once we understand that, then really surrender should follow because it's kind of a contradiction in terms to call him Lord and not do the things that he says, which is what he said himself to the disciples. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? It's sort of assumes that we, that we need to surrender to him and to follow his will. And again, to look at how all of what we're talking about now makes so much sense in the light of things that we read later in his epistles, would you be so kind as to look over a few pages with me to Romans chapter 12? So he says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. So he, he, now he's going to, he's, Paul is going to speak and he's going to give us direction about what should our response be to the mercies of God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What should be our response to the mercies of God? the salvation that's been extended to us. And by the way, um, you see the word therefore, and you often heard it commented that when you see the word therefore, you should ask yourself what the word therefore is there for. And of course, it really refers to everything that goes before, but more particularly, it refers to what Paul in, in Romans 9 through 11 is talking about this, these dispensational dealings of God and how he recognizes 
the fact of what God is doing. Look at verse 31 to pick up mercy, or verse 30 to pick up mercy again. For as in times past ye have not believed God, yet now have obtained, what's that word? Mercy. Are you there with me? Mercy through their unbelief. Even so now also, uh, these also now not believed, that through your mercy they may obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. And he's, he's unfolding this incredible plan that no one else could have ever conceived how God chose the nation of Israel and actually used their unbelief in order to catapult the attention to the Gentiles because God's plan all along was to save people from the ends of the earth. And the church came into existence and God's word has been preached all these years and his mercy proclaimed to the ends of the earth and we still have more of that to do. But it's all about his mercy in Jesus Christ. It's all about the salvation that's available. And you know it's going to end up the same way at the end of the church age that the church will end up in apostasy and the springboard will turn back and the focus will turn back to the nation of Israel. But God won't be done with the earth because even during the tribulation period, thousands upon thousands of people will be saved. Beloved, we are a minority in this world. And it is probably true that in the greater scheme of all of the numbers of people who have been born and lived. But I think, you, I think one of the things that's going to stagger you about heaven when you get there is how many people are there. I don't think we've really thought in those terms, but that's God's plan. He's calling a people unto his name from every kindred, tribe, nation, and people. The mercies of God. So when he gets to chapter 12, he's going to start making practical applications of that. And he says, okay, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Well, if you understand anything about God's mercy, if you understand anything about the fact that he saved you, you've accepted Christ as Savior. Now he says... Present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And what's so interesting is this word that's translated reasonable. Reasonable is really a great translation of this because in Greek it's actually the word for logic. What he's really saying is this is just makes sense. This is, this, is your, this is your logical response to the mercies of God. That God has come along and intervened in your life, demonstrated to you your need of a Savior, saved you and made you his own, given you a home in heaven, the question should fall off all of our lips. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What purpose do you have for my life? And am I obedient to that here today? Recently, it might have been just this last week. I, I can't remember, but um, Kathy gave us a book that had um, the, some of the original, two of the original writers of um, the devotions for Our Daily Bread. And uh, as soon as I saw that book, I thought, i got to ask her if I can have that book because I already know that's going to be good stuff. Um, yeah, I don't mean any un unkindness, but I've kind of watched over the years and seen it isn't what it used to be. But Henry Bosch and Old Man DeHaan, yeah, it's good stuff there when you start reading those devotions. So we've been reading those devotions. And... In one of them the other day, um, it was a really interesting story because it, he, he gave the story of, a, of one of the old Roman coins that showed on the coin a picture of an ox. And the ox intentionally is positioned like midway between, on the one hand, an altar, and on the other hand, a plow. Right between a plow and an altar. And the inscription on the coin is, ready for either. And he goes on to say that this is the spirit that typifies the, two, the true Christian. Readiness for service or for sacrifice. Can we say we are ready? Surrender. Obedience. The third thing that we need to spend just a minute on here is the word continue, or can, we could make a noun of it in continuance um, in verse number 26. Look there. And he says this. Verse 22, sorry. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none of the things other than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. So now you can underline the word continue. And I'm not so sure that he hasn't given us the hardest one right there. If you think about it. 
Let's make a little comparison for a moment. Do you know who the first martyr was? Among the apostles. Let me rephrase the question. Among the apostles. Acts 12, his brothers John, James. Remember, when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, that's what led to him arresting Peter also. Killed James with the sword. So, relatively early, not talking about Stephen now, but but James, among the apostles, relatively early, James, that's God's plan for his life. Which is harder, that or Paul? They both ended up with the same basic situation. Paul ended up being beheaded. He was a Roman citizen. But... They both faced martyrdom, but Paul, at the end of a long, long career, and the particular pathway that involved for him involved difficulties, suffering, hardship, all kinds of things along the way. Look in verse uh, 21. He alludes to this right here as he's giving his uh, testimony. He says in verse 21, for these causes, he's talking about one specific occasion, but there were so many. He said, for these causes, the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Well, how often did they did that? Did they do that? And if you want to really read a, a little synopsis, it still doesn't give us everything of all the hardship that Paul faced in his life. Just go to 2 Corinthians 11, where he talks about fast, being in fast, being in imprisonment, being perils of robbers, perils in the sea. He talks about being shipwrecked. All kinds of things that Paul went through in the course of his service for Christ. And I can't really be the judge of this for you. I'm not saying one was more spiritual than the other. I'm not saying one has a greater reward than the other. I don't know any of that stuff. It's above my pay grade. All I know is, is that sometimes doing one thing for Christ is one thing and living a life for Christ is something else steadfast, faithful, being committed to the Lord day in and day out, following his will. And this brings us right back full circle to what we talked about at the the beginning and that service. Paul gives two well-known testimonies of this. I wish I could say these things. I find not only the statement that he makes about to Agrippa about not being disobedient to the heavenly vision, but these two things I find to be enviable and hope that I could say them or in the context hoped that I could say it, but do you remember in Acts chapter 20 when Paul was determined to go to Jerusalem and the the Spirit kept witnessing in every city that bonds and afflictions awaited him, right? What did he have to say to that? But none of these things move me. Acts 20 and verse 24. Neither count I my life dear unto myself that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry that I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Finish my course with joy. Nothing's going to, nothing's going to, he's determined this by God's grace. Nothing's going to hinder him. And he talks about that course again at the end of his life when he says, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Those are quite some testimonies to give, aren't they? And you say, well, I just don't know that I can do that. Yes, you can, because the same help that's available to Paul is available to you. That's what he says in verse 22. Having therefore obtained what? Help of God. No, you're not going to be able to do it in your own strength. That's a foregone conclusion. We will have to have God's help. But the same God who told Paul his grace was sufficient and the same God who provided the help that Paul needed at every turn and every point and every difficulty in that long committed life of service. Don't worry about yesterday because it's gone. You can't live on yesterday's grace, which is what a lot of Christians are trying to do. You can't borrow tomorrow's. You have to ask the daily bread. And that's what the Lord provides to us. I wish I had time to talk about a little bit more of this, but I don't. But I want to 
conclude this morning by telling you, to me, uh, one of the most inspiring missionary stories that, I mean, there are many. There's no dearth of inspiring missionary stories, but do you know the story of William Borden? Of course, if I say Borden, you'll think of Borden Dairies, and you'll be exactly right, because in the early 1900s, a 16-year-old young man by the name of William Borden graduated from high school in Chicago and, and was to be the heir of the Borden fortune. And the plan was to graduate from high school, and then he would go on to uh, Ivy League College to Yale, and was then to uh, sort of become the heir apparent of the, the Borden Dairy uh, business. His parents wanted to give him a high school graduation. I don't know if we have any teens here this morning that are thinking about that, so I'll throw you one out. You can always ask your parents. But they gave him a trip around the world for his graduation present from high school. By the way, he graduated at 16. So this is kind of interesting. He's taking this trip around the world and... Little little background before this, see, he had come under the influence of the preaching of Dwight L. Moody and had trusted Christ as his Savior. And you know what happened? He began to take that trip around the world and inevitably God began to speak to him and burden him about the peoples of the world and about the mission of Christ and about sharing God's word. He told his parents about that. He told them, he said, that he wanted to renounce his role in the Borden Dairy Estate and wanted to serve Christ as a missionary. He wrote a, wrote a letter to his parents and informed them of that fact that for the remainder of his life he wanted to be a missionary. And there were, there were people among his friends and everywhere else who thought that he was doing nothing in the world more than throwing his life away. Well, if you read the story that's before us in Acts chapter 26 this morning, Festus thought Paul was mad. So it's not exactly a new reaction, right? And he came back home and he went to uh, Yale and then he went to Princeton for his theological training. He's now 25 years old and he wants to be a missionary in China. That's where he feels the Lord has sent him. But he makes a stop in Egypt because he realizes that he's going to need the language. If he's going to reach the Muslims of China, he's going to need the language and the language is Arabic. He gets to Egypt to learn Arabic. He's there no more than a month. He contracts meningitis and is dead in a month's time. Well, it's a lot like the story that I told you about Jim Elliott. When that happened, the Lord used that tragedy and the report of that tragedy to galvanize thousands of young men and young women who read about Borden's story in the newspapers and it inspired them to leave everything they had and serve Jesus Christ. Well, Borden's parents weren't amenable to this in the beginning, as you might sort of know, and later after he died, his Bible was given to his parents. This is really the thing that, that's it. They opened that Bible when they got it and they found that shortly after he had made that decision and informed them of that decision that he was going to go to the mission field, he had written two words in the front cover of his Bible inside, no reserve. Don't take those words lightly because he was renouncing the Borden fortune and he wrote those two words, no reserves. Then as time unfolded and he got to the next waypoint in his life and his letter, his, he had received a letter from his father who had told him before that he would always have a job with the company if he changed his mind and his father then told him that no, he'd never let him work in the company again. And Borden had written at that point under the words, no reserve, no retreat. Then they discovered two more words, the third line that shortly before his death, after he had contracted meningitis in Egypt, he wrote two more words, no regret. No reserve, no retreat, no regret. I say that's living out what Paul did in his life about as well as anything I can think of. 
Three words, they seem to sum up. Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Pray about it, think about it, because you don't necessarily have to wait on next Sunday morning. If God is speaking to your heart, now's the time to act on that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and for your kindness and being so patient with us when it seems, Lord, that we look at some of these other folk in the Bible and they, they, they put us to shame. And so many people in the history of the church, they seem to put us to shame. And yet, Lord, we realize that there's great mercy and great forgiveness and great privilege in yielding our lives to you, that you may use us and that you may uh, guide us and direct us and help us to be um, a useful vessel in your hands. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. And I wonder if there's anybody this morning that would say, Preacher, you know, I know I'm saved, but I am concerned a little bit about whether or not I serve the Lord as I should. Maybe I haven't really given a whole lot of thought to what God's plan or purpose is for my life, but I ought to, I know I ought to. Or you might even be in the kind of category where you know what it is God wants you to do and you haven't really yielded to that. There's no surrender's not there. Could I include you in prayer this morning? Or maybe you'd just like to say this morning, preacher, hey, I, I know I'm not perfect. None of us is perfect. The one up here talking to you is not perfect. But that's going to be my prayer this week as I think about these meetings. What do you want me to do? Show me more of that through these meetings. Show me if there are things that I need to correct. Show me if there are things that um, I need to change in my life. If any of that includes you and you just want to be remembered in prayer this morning, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you out, but I wonder if you'd just slip your hand up, would you? Anybody, anywhere? God bless. God bless you, you. God bless you. God bless you, you. Thank you so much. Anybody here this morning that says, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm not sure I'm saved. Pray for me because I need to get that taken care of. All right, look, I'm not going to embarrass you. But I want to see if you'd be willing to take that first step and say, the Lord's speaking to my heart about that. I need to get that settled soon. Anybody like that, just say, please include me in the prayer. I'm not going to call your name out. Now I'm going to call you know, where you are in the building. Just take that first step. God's speaking to my heart. Anybody like that? Oh, God in heaven, we thank you for... Paul, his life, his testimony, for those things that he's given us to help us to understand better how we can follow his example, knowing that it is an example that you give us intentionally in the scripture, that you showed mercy to him as a pattern. We read that. And often and so often he exhorted his followers to be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. I pray for each person that felt a special touch from you today. Whatever that is, Lord, you know exactly where we are in our lives, what the burdens of heart that we have are, what our needs are. I don't know that, but you do. And I just pray you'll continue to tug and squeeze at every heart, whether someone felt led to raise his hand or not. You'll just continue to tug and squeeze our hearts to help us to be more yielded, more like Christ. Thank you for the privilege of being left in this world that we might serve you. Help us to take others with us to heaven when we go. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.